0: Welcome to this week's podcast, at Bergen Park Church, from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, hey, welcome to Bergen Park Church. That's where you are, if you didn't know. You're at Bergen Park Church. It's Sunday morning. It's good to see you here. Um, You know, I think as we gather on Sunday morning, one of the things that we have to kind of recalibrate, you know, it's... Church isn't just about those on stage. It's about the gathering of the community. It's about the body of Christ coming together in his presence and building relationships with the people around us. You know, some of the most impactful uh, growth in my life hasn't come from just a message or just a song, it's the relationships that I've had with others. It's the investment into others, people's lives. It's sharing in their sorrows and their joys. It's walking through uh, kids graduating and getting married and then going off and all that kind of stuff. It's life together, but life together with Jesus at the center. And as a church, our desire at Bergen Park is to be that kind of community where people are coming to know Christ and walking in intimacy with him. One of the ways we seek to do that is to be in community with each other, but also to be in his word. And one of the books we're walking through right now is the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is a challenging. It's a challenging book. It's a book that deconstructs our optimism. You know, sometimes you start off in life and kind of in your 20s, or if you're kind of younger, uh, you have this great optimism. I can't wait. I can't wait till this happens. And when I get married, or when I get to college, and then I'm gonna have kids, and then it's gonna be awesome, and things are gonna be great. And it's just. And then in ministry, it's like, oh, I'm gonna go into ministry, and I'm gonna be a, a pastor, and I'm gonna change the world, and everyone's gonna love me. And it's gonna be awesome. And then you get to Ecclesiastes, and he says, meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And he kind of gives us this this splash of reality. But see, it also, what he does is he cuts into our cynicism. You know that cynicism in life, that lack of hope, that lack of optimism? It cuts into that, and it draws us to God. Because see, what Ecclesiastes says loudly and shockingly is you're not in control. You want to be. And just because you are successful in one area of life doesn't mean you can do relationships and doesn't mean you can do emotions and doesn't mean you're gonna figure everything out. The book of Ecclesiastes says we're not in control, we want to be, but we have to trust the one who is. Now because we're not in control, here's the danger. Because there's oppression and brokenness in the world, we tend to escape and detach. I mean, it's called work out as much as you possibly can. It's called invest into beauty. It's called invest into your career. It's called building wealth. It's so often what we do is we replace good things God's given us, and we replace him with these things, and we invest our lives into him to get an identity, to get feeling, purpose in life, but really what we're doing is we're just detaching from life. We're detaching from our emotions. We go to Netflix. You know, we go to gossip. We go to blaming others. We go to politics all is a way of gaining that control back instead of going to the Father. And in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying we need to try wisdom. That see, wisdom helps us to engage life as a gift from God. That our family is a gift, our money is a gift, our job is a gift, politics can be a gift too. If we engage it in the right way. And wisdom can guide us and direct us. It can give us life. It can allow us to receive life as a gift from God. But see, wisdom is not enough. The goal of wisdom is to take you to the end of yourself to realize that you need God. And so that's Ecclesiastes 7. You guys ready for this? We're gonna jump into Ecclesiastes 7. We're gonna look at it in two parts. And the first one you may not like. I didn't like it that much until I started sitting in it, and it's the invitation of of sorrow. The invitation of sorrow. Now that's an invitation I'd rather skip. Uh, You know, I'd like the invitation of joy, not the invitation of sorrow, but there's something sorrow can teach you that happiness can't. And then the second half of this passage is how wisdom is good, but it's not enough. And the goal of wisdom is to take us to the Father. You guys with me, you guys here? Yeah, (laughs) let's jump into it, help me out here. Let's get into Ecclesiastes chapter seven. The word of the Lord. He says, "A good name, it is better than precious ointment. But the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go at a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. for see, this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools. now the house of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. And this is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise to madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. But better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is much better than the proud in spirit. And so don't be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges. It lodges in the heart of fools. And so say not, hey, why were the former days, why were they better than these? For it is, from, it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, would you meet us here? Would you give us through the, through the spirit the ears to hear, the eyes to see? And Father, even take us to that place that we may avoid in life, that we try to escape and detach, but through your spirit, Father, would you attune us to yourself? Would your words speak to us and bring healing, restoration, a new vision for life? Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's an invitation from sorrow. Now, I have a counselor I work with. He's more of a spiritual director than a counselor. He kind of helps you when it comes to your own spiritual walk with the Lord, somebody I meet with on a regular basis. And he said recently, and I wasn't real happy with this, but he said, Jason, you don't do sadness well. And I didn't like that. I got a little angry, because anger lodges in the heart of fools. But see, sorrow is an invitation When we're sorrowful, it's because there's something, it correlates to loss. When you're losing something, there's a bit of sorrow in the heart. But what happens when you don't acknowledge the sorrow? What what happens is you escape. You detach. Detach from God, you detach from people. And so he starts off by talking about sorrow and he uses this illustration. You know, he says in verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment. It's better than to have character than simply to smell good. It's nice to smell well, but it's better to have something of substance in your life. Because see, that's gonna have a a greater weight in the lives of others than simply having the right profile on social media, simply being seen a certain way or having a, a certain reputation before others. Rather, he says what matters is the character of the heart and see, sadness refines the heart. It purifies us. Now, how does it do that? Well, that's the second half of verse one. And he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, that needs to be proved a little. He's not saying that death is better than life. But when you go to a maternity ward, now, there's some sadness in a maternity ward, but there's also a lot of hope and expectation. You hold that child for the first time. Now, listen What do you know about that child? Now, hopefully, you know who the parents are. And you may look at that child and you may know the weight and the height and whether they have hair or whether they don't. And you may look at the eyes and say, you know, those are the eyes of her father. That's the nose of her mother. But you don't know anything about this child's character. You don't know who they're gonna become or what they're going to do. But see, the day of birth is about potential. The day of death is about reality. This is who she was. Man, she had the generosity of her mother. That's different than simply having her eyes. She had the determination of her father. She loved Jesus. You know, to be around her, she brought joy in the midst of sorrow. She brought comfort in the midst of difficulty. She was a woman of significance and character. On the day of death, you find out who that person is but you may also find out she was selfish. She really just lived for herself, she really didn't love others. The day of death brings reality, the day of birth just brings hopeful expectation. And so he goes on to explain what this looks like. He says it's better to go to a house of mourning, verse two, than to go to a house of feasting. For it is the end of all mankind, and see the living, this is something we've gotta allow to saturate our heart. That each one of us is going to die. Do we allow death to teach us? Because he's saying death is a better teacher than birth. When you go to a funeral, there's a potential for change. There's an opportunity to reevaluate. Because see, when we lose something, it's because we've loved something. And sadness correlates to loss. But sadness correlates, more importantly, to love. And when you go to a funeral, one of the things that happens is your loves get car- clarified. Have you had that experience? You walked away? And you start thinking to yourself, why am, I, why am I giving myself to so many petty things? I'm investing my life into hobbies. I'm allowing this bitterness and this anger towards somebody to rule my heart and to rule my words and to rule my mind. Why am I doing that? Because see, what sorrow does and loss is it clarifies your loves, but it purifies your loves, doesn't it? Begins to remind you of what's most important. Now, last night, I experienced this myself. Now, not the loss of a loved one, but a son who's becoming a man. You know, that's an exciting, its a moment to see your child grow up, to see them become independent. My son last night went to homecoming for the first time. And that was fun to see the awkwardness, you know, the dates and all that, and that kind of moment's like, this is my, this is my date, <laughs> you know? And yet there was, when we got home, my wife and I, we were just, there was sadness. Sadness, of the loss of parenting. Sadness of a little boy that's becoming a man. But in that sadness, you know what happened? As I went to bed last night, I'm like, man, I wanna get my arms around him. I wanna be a better father. And I got another boy coming up, he's 14, I still got a little bit of time. There's some things I need to change. Sadness has a way of purifying the loves. Now, parties are great, and he says, it's better to go to a house in the morning than to go to a party. Now, parties can lift the heart, it's good to have good food and good fellowship, but how many of you have been transformed by a party? I mean, how many of us come home drunk and do something amazing? That's why Waffle House is open 24 hours. Because <laughs> as they say, there's always time for one more bad decision. <laughs> but see, a funeral's different. It helps us to evaluate. And he's saying it's better to allow sadness to influence the heart because it begins to bring clarity to the eyes and to the direction of your life. Sorrow, verse three, is better than laughter for a sad face It changes the heart. Verse five, and he says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now, the song of fools is in the house of party. It lifts you up, it encourages you, it supports you. And yet the rebuke of the wise is the rebuke of mortality. It's when you go to a funeral and you, you allow the impact of what's happening to begin to speak to you. In a sense, death here is like an evangelist and he's daring us to stare him in his eyes. He's daring us to take the full reality of our own mortality into our minds and allow it to begin to instruct us because see, here's what the fool does. When the fool goes to a, a funeral, he's thinking about what's for lunch. He's not listening to the words of the people. He's not listening to the eulogies. He's not listening to the testimonies. He's simply thinking about what NFL game am I missing? He's constantly checking the store, scores because see, his desire is to escape what will actually change his life. His desire is to detach. You know, God has given us emotions. People tell us, I don't know how many emotions there are. This one guy said eight, so I've kinda of bought onto that. There's eight. And every one of our emotions is good. Anger is good. Gladness is good. Shame. You know, shame can actually be good. Guilt can be good, sadness is good, because see, in every one of these emotions, it's either going to lead us to intimacy, or it's going to lead us to isolation. It's either gonna lead us to relationships with others that are deeper and richer and more meaningful, because see, when I'm sad, last night with my wife, that actually creates intimacy between the two of us, because we are sharing a sadness together. And that sadness bonds two people closer to one another because they realize what is precious in life and see our emotions are intended to draw us in relationship with each other and to draw us in relationship to God. And so he says in verse six, here's the contrast, the crackling of thorns under the pot is the laughter of fools. And this also is a vanity. That sorrow gives us an invitation to evaluate what matters. The, questioning is, the question is, are we willing to receive it? Are we willing to receive it? Are we willing to learn from it, or do we just run from distraction to distraction to distraction? Because the truth is we won't live forever. You know, there was a TV show in the 80s called Fame. It was about a high school dance team. And one in the song, one of the, the key lines was, uh, what is it, I'm gonna live forever. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm talking about. And actually, and in 2009, they did a, a remake. They actually made a, a movie based on the TV series, I'm Going to Live Forever, fame. And yet what you'll find is in the 2009 movie, they couldn't use any of the actors really from the 80s because <laughs> they're not going to live forever. So they chose prettier and stronger and more talented people to replace the actors from the 80s, because we all know that our bodies wear down. And sorrow can teach us about life, and sorrow can actually enable us to receive life as a gift and to enjoy life as it is. But see, where sorrow speaks to us, wisdom directs us. And so in verse seven and following, he begins to talk about the goodness of wisdom. So watch this in verse seven. Verse seven. He says, Surely oppression drives the wise to madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. See, oppression has a way of drawing the worst out in us. Wisdom says, When someone curses me, the only way I'm going to overcome evil is with good. But how well do we do that? When we're confronted with evil, does what come out of us, is it good? No, it's often evil. Because oppression draws out oppression in us. So to the wise, oppression is something that's a temptation. Just as a bribe is a temptation to the heart. Verse eight, the end of a matter is, is better than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. That often we judge things by how they begin and we assume that's the totality of the story. But we forget that God is at work that when oppression happens we assume okay that's that's the end of things or this is how that person is and often we become proud in spirit and we stand in the place of god and we judge others instead of being patient in spirit and trusting that you know what i see is bad but if i respond with patience if i don't allow oppression to bring out oppression in me but instead i respond to this oppression in wisdom with good The end of the matter may actually be better than the beginning and I may be a part of affecting change in the lives of others. Wisdom changes a bad circumstance maybe 10, 20 years later into something that's possibly good. But he goes on to say in verse nine, but watch out. When you see oppression and you see injustice, here's what happens, we tend to be quick in our spirit to become angry and here's the truth of anger. And certainly for men, it lodges in your heart. And you have this throughout your life, this low rumble of anger. Have you ever found that? It's just always there. It's always speaking to you, it's always directing you. And see, when it lodges, what it does is it holds on to the heart and says, I'm not gonna let sadness in. I'm not going to admit that I'm ashamed. I'm not gonna admit guilt. I'm not going to admit that I'm alone. Instead, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna protect myself from all these emotions. I'm gonna establish myself in anger and I'm gonna be strong and I'm gonna be in control. And what happens in the process is you allow oppression to take over. Instead of patience, you find pride. And instead of intimacy with God and others, you become more and more and more isolated. Does that sound familiar? Wisdom says, you fool. And that's why he goes on and he tells us, he he tells us in in verse 10, he says, hey, don't, don't fall into this trap. Don't fall into the trap that says, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask these things. How often have we heard that? The former days were so much better than today. The older we get, doesn't that start to kind of settle in our heart? It's called nostalgia. That we assume there was a period of time in which life was good. Now, why do we assume that life was good? Well, what happens is in our own minds and our hearts, we upplay the good things and we downplay the bad. And so maybe we have nostalgia for some vacation that we took in seventh grade. We have nostalgia for the 80s or the 90s, some period in history that we kinda keep going back to in our mind and what we start to do is we start to elevate how good it was and we start to forget all the stress. That when you're in seventh grade, you had no issues, you had no problems. When you were 22, 25, whatever day it was, whatever decade it was, there were no issues in the world, there was no hunger, there was no poverty, there was no racism, there was no brokenness. Life was just sweet and life was good. Because what nostalgia does is it lies to the heart so that we won't live in the moment. And when we think there's a time that's better than today, you know what's gonna happen? You're not going to allow God to use you today because you're stuck in the past. And you're assuming, you know, God was there doing stuff 10 years ago, but he's not doing things today. And so we cut ourselves off from others. We cut ourselves off from God. Wisdom says, no, God is still at work. You know, C.S. Lewis has this great um, illustration. He talks about nostalgia, and he says, nostalgia is not just about hoping or, or dreaming about the past. It's, all, it's also about longing for the future. That the reason we dream and we think of those times as better is because we were created for a home. A home with a father that loved us and watched out for us, a home where there is relationships that are good and pure, where we do walk in patience, we don't allow anger to lodge the heart, and we do not see oppression. See, that place is called being in the presence of God. And nostalgia is not just about reclaiming a day that we once had, it's about worshiping the God who makes all things right. But listen, if you're not willing to allow him to work in your heart today, how's he gonna make anything right? If you don't allow sorrow to teach you, if you don't allow that intimacy and that experience of loss to remind you and purify your loves, you're not gonna allow the Father to come in and begin to change you. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, is watch out, because see, life wants you to drive you to escape and detach, but wisdom wants you to be deeper and become a person of character that makes an impact in the lives of people around you. And so he goes to the conclusion in verses 11 through 14, and we'll end with this. He says, wisdom is good. It's good with an inheritance, the advantage of those who see the Son. For the protection, notice wisdom is protection like money is protection. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So wisdom is kind of like money. Because see, when you're sick and you have money, there's healing. When you're homeless and you have money, there's a place to stay. When you're hungry and you have money, there is food. Wisdom wisdom protects your life. But he's gonna say it's not enough. Because notice in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. Verse 14, And the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Wisdom is good in that it enables you to receive life as a gift, but the goal of wisdom is not to be wise in and of yourself. The goal of wisdom is to lead you to know the Father to take you to the end of yourself, because he says, why has God allowed certain things to be crooked? And the reality is we don't know. There, there are questions that we have and experiences that we have in life that we can't answer. And see, if we don't have a place that we can take that to, what's gonna happen? Anger is gonna lodge in the heart. We're gonna be impatient instead of allowing God to draw us in intimacy with others and to God. And see, what wisdom's supposed to do is to take us to a place of surrender. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's to take us to the end of ourselves and in the end of ourselves, we find the Father. You know, Jesus was described as a man of sorrows. One who is familiar with suffering. Now, remember, what does does sorrow correspond to? It corresponds to loss, but see, loss corresponds to love. Why was Jesus a man of sorrows? Because he was a man of deep, deep. Love. And when you live in a world of brokenness and you have a relationship with a God who so loved the world that he was willing to befriend those who would crucify him, you will experience sorrow. And where will you take those sorrows to? You take them back to the Father, into the one Jesus Christ who's experienced the sorrows of life himself. We don't have a God who just throws out truth to us to comfort us. We have a God who's entered into our pain, entered into our brokenness, entered into our frailty and into our loss. And he's taken our brokenness and he's taken our sadness upon himself for what purpose? So that we could reorder our loves. And so we could know the love of God. Father, are you willing to be honest about life? The book of Ecclesiastes is a call to honesty, a call to honesty about the hurts of life, a call to honesty about what we need in life, and to be honest that we're trying to escape what God has given us, whether it's the adversity of life or the joys, to draw us to himself. Now, today, we're going to celebrate together communion, and I should have mentioned this before. We got started, but if you haven't grabbed the elements, maybe you could send somebody back and pick those elements up. A lot of you probably need to do that, so it's okay. Don't be nervous. You're free to go pick those up, and we're going to celebrate together, communion. And actually, guys, you know, beginning this Sunday and each Sunday, we're going to start celebrating communi- communion every single week. Because see, communion is a vital reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us that our salvation doesn't come on the basis of what we can do or what we can accomplish, but it comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his life, his death and resurrection, we have a relationship with the Father, and it happens through confession and faith. Then in a place like this, we ask the Father, Father, would you forgive me? Would you show me, and maybe today as we receive communion, show me the places I'm escaping to, how I'm detaching from the realities of life, And Lord, would you come in and comfort my sorrows? You know, God has revealed himself as the God of mercy. Actually, the father of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we can comfort others. So let's just take a moment to reflect and then together we're gonna receive communion together. Let's just take a moment in silence to speak to our Lord. Jesus, on the night in which you were betrayed, you took bread, you broke it, you gave thanks and you said, take and eat for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it together in remembrance of it. after supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it represents the new covenant, the new relationship that is established in his blood. Let us receive it together in remembrance of him.